Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is my book review of Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler. This is an ecstatic manifesto, and what I take away from this book is that flow may save us from our selves. And this is the third book that I've read, authored by ecstatic practitioner, author, extraordinaire, Stephen Kotler. When I think critically about the future of our species, I oscillate between being a black-pilled accelerationist and being a cheerful optimist that hopes that one day we will be salsa dancing on Olympus Mons on Mars and when I read Stephen Kotler's books, I lean more towards the latter than the former. Years ago, I listened to this very lengthy audiobook, which was the Master Switch by Tim Wu, and it describes this predictable cycle that information technologies go through, which starts with decentralization, and then you have centralization, and then you have regulation, and then a lot of times you have monopoly, and then a lot of times you have tyranny. And it would be kind of easy to assume that with the internet, we have kind of reached the end of history because the internet has optimized the flow and consumption of information to extents that, wow, in the past people really wouldn't have believed was possible. It has made information consumption, instantaneous information consumption entrenched with virtually everything that we do. Stealing fire makes the compelling case that engineered ecstasis, this state of mind that has been with us since time immemorial, is the next world-rocking technology that is going to flip society on its head. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is up to us. This book is about flow state, which is the cognitive state of hyperfrontality that extreme athletes use to flirt with death. It's what allows artists and musicians to draw from that deep, bottomless well of human cleverness, and it's what allows the religious to experience fellowship and a connection to something divine. If you've ever faced certain death, near certain death, you've probably experienced this, this vivid slowing down of time where your life flashes below, flashes before your eyes. This is flow state. It might have even saved your life. You are the supercomputer. For decades, 
Self-help books and self-help gurus have been selling this line that we only use 5% or 7% or some unimpressive proportion of our brains. And there's a quantum of veracity in this puffery. Good flow research is something that uh, is indicating that this flow state really powerfully unlocks our minds. I'll quote from the book. Conscious processing can only handle about 12,000 bits of information at once. This isn't much. Listening to another person speak can take almost 60 bits. If two people are talking it, that's it. We're maxed out on bandwidth. Maybe I made a mistake there. I think what it's meaning to say is that we only have about 120 bits of information processing at once. I'll go on. The conscious mind is a potent tool, but it's slow and can manage only a small amount of information at once. The subconscious, meanwhile, is far more efficient. It can process more data in much shorter time frames. In ecstasis, the conscious mind takes a break and the subconscious takes over. Ecstatic practice and technology is a way that we can linger in what these researchers call the deep now. Without the ability to separate past from present from future, we're plunged into an elongated present that researchers describe as the deep now. Energy normally used for temporal processing gets relocated for focus and attention. We take in more data per second and process it more quickly. When we're processing more information faster, the moment seems to last longer, which explains why the now elongates in altered states. On creativity, people often ask me, Jonathan, what are the biohacks for creativity? And I would say that they are things like nicotine, caffeine, L-theanine, focus-promoting music, along with memory systems, which I've done some audio programs on. And to that list, I'll add very crucially, flow state. First, creativity is essential for solving complex problems, the kinds we often face in a fast-paced world. Second, we have very little success training people to be more creative. And there's a pretty simple explanation for this failure. We're trying to train a skill, but what we really need to be training is a state of mind. And there are four forces of ecstasis. Here's what they are. Thanks to accelerating development in four fields, psychology, neurobiology, pharmacology, and technology, call them the four forces of ecstasis, we're getting greater access to and understanding of non-ordinary states of consciousness. Unsurprisingly, sex can be a real gateway to flow, to quote from the book. Social scientist Jenny Wade has spent her career studying these same phenomena. The fact is sex all by itself, she writes in her book, Transcendent Sex, can trigger states identical to those attained by 
spiritual adepts of all traditions. By Wade's estimate, nearly 20 million Americans have had at least one encounter with boundary-dissolving, self-obliterating sex. It's happened to countless thousands of people, regardless of their background, she notes, to hairdressers, investment managers, nurses, lawyers, retailers, and executives. And I'd, if this tantalizes you a bit, I'd encourage you to check out some of the articles that I've done on tantric sex, and also check out uh, One Taste Style Orgasmic Meditation. This is, this is pretty cool. I'm not sure if you're gonna wanna do it, but it's, it's worth at least uh, checking out some of the YouTube videos on it that I will link to. And one point that the book drives home, and maybe this should be the real takeaway from this, is that ecstasis is rocket fuel for transformation, for personal transformation. It's not just a recreational thing. A lot of the examples of it that really get glorified are, you know, these uh, recreational hedonistic things, right? Using a bunch of crazy drugs. <clears throat> but it can really be something that can enable rapid high leverage personal development. It should be on your radar if that's what you're into, to quote from the book. The move from self-authoring to self-transformation, for example, fewer than 5% of us ever make that jump. But in all of his developmental research, buried in the footnotes about those self-transcending 5%ers lay a curious fact. A disproportionate number of them had dabbled in ecstasis, often beginning with psychedelics and after that making meditation, martial arts, and other state-shifting practices a central part of their lives. Many of them describe their frequent access to non-ordinary states as the turbo button for their development. And I'll mention flow science. This may kind of sound at first glance, at first look, like a uh, hippie, dippy, woo-woo kind of thing, but you can find in the article linked below this, I have a link to PubMed, where there's well over 200 scientific publications on this topic. So it is an area of critical thinking and rigorous research. I'll quote, the scans showed significant deactivation in the right parietal lobe, a key component in the brain's navigation system. This part of the brain helps us to move through space by judging angles and distances, but to make these judgments, this region must first decide where our body ends and the rest of the world begins, essentially drawing a boundary line between self and other. Let's talk about drugs. Drugs are bad, okay? Unsurprisingly, when you're talking about flow, uh, drugs come up quite a bit. It's one of the major pharmacological pathways to flow state. And in the book, it makes the case, interestingly, that intoxication is a driver of evolution, both uh, microevolution, uh, micro even down to the our personal evolution, and as well as macro evolution. Quote, UCLA psychopharmacologist Ronald K. Siegel pointed out in his book, Intoxication, 
drug seeking and drug taking are biologically normal behaviors. In a sense, pursuit of intoxicating drugs is the rule rather than the exception. This has led Siegel to a controversial conclusion. The pursuit of intoxication with drugs is a primary motivational force in organisms. In his book, The Botany of Desire, <clears throat> Michael Pollan argues that co-evolution, when two different species come together, often without knowing it to advance each other's self-interest, also extends to humans and intoxicating plants. In return for helping mind-altering plants propagate and outcompete other species, these same plants have evolved even greater psychoactive properties for us to enjoy. Plants, Poland explains in a recent essay, evolve to gratify our desires. In return, we give them more habitat and we carry their genes around the world. This is what I mean by the botany of desire. Our desire for intoxication, for changes in consciousness, is a powerful force in natural history. The book talks about music that I thought was kind of cool, a significantly lower risk tool than drugs for flirting with flow state is music. And the book also includes an interview with the audio wizard behind the audio um, engineering company Function One, which actually designed a really amazingly immersive sound system that's featured at like really world-class discotheques and concerts around the world. They actually had a Function One audio system at a nightclub beta in Denver, Colorado, which I uh, used to spend a lot of time at. Quote, he's the co-founder of the British speaker company Function One, and while the name may not be familiar, it represents a half century of sonic innovation and the quest for what Andrews has come to call the audio moment. The audio moment is an instant of total absorption. It's the point, explained Andrews in a recent talk, when you really, when you get really involved in the music, when you suddenly realize that you've been somewhat transported to another place, when you find yourself experiencing more of yourself than you realized was there in the first place. I don't hang out at those kind of nightclubs anymore now. Now I'm a bit more into salsa clubs. I wish they'd install a function one system at a salsa club. I've yet to find that. Now my musical gateway to flow is uh, algorithmic flow promoting focus promoting music. Most notably, I like the software tool and the app Brain FM. I will fire this up and I'll listen to some of their tunes. And I find that if I'm working on something meaningful, I find that after about 15 minutes, sometimes it takes uh, 20, 25 minutes, I'm in a nicely subtle, very focused, very creative flow state. So check, check that out if you're like, whoa, this flow stuff sounds sounds awesome. Where where can I get started cheaply and easily? Check out Brain FM. Flow tech. That's right. Of course, technology. There's there's a lot of technology options. If you're looking for a real shortcut to flow, uh, there's some devices that you might want to drop some coin on. I'll talk about HRV heart rate variability training. Personally, I've had some really sublime 
flow state experiences, really vivid flow state experiences that were that were very, very cool using the HeartMath Institute's M-Wave device. There's a couple of different devices now. There's probably some different options out there. And I found that when I combined uh, a little bit of marijuana with doing the HRV training, I found myself really getting into some cool states of flow. You might not want to uh, smoke marijuana. There's a lot of downsides to it, but it'd be worth experimenting with if you're going to spring for an HRV device, it might be worth picking up some CBD oil as well that has some of the same kinds of effects, but it's not nearly as intoxicating and combining those two. I bet that they are going to result in some really cool flow states for you. I looked around the internet and I found some other bloggers and biohackers talking about the same uh, flow state triggering from using the HRV devices. And there was also some interesting research on the HeartMath Institute website. I'll quote from it. Our study attempted to help students achieve sense of flow or peak enhancement using HRV coherence biofeedback in conjunction with mental and emotional refocusing techniques that are compatible with the above cited research. Well-researched method for learning to achieve optimal and positive flow states of functioning, such as flow, is through HRV training, and more specifically, coherence training using HRV to achieve psychological coherence. And some of the flow researchers in the book even use this a little bit differently than I did to achieve what they call group flow. Quote, in his work with heart rate variability, Siegel found that by upgrading the tone to include a visual display and adding an EEG layer so there's neurofeedback to go along with the biofeedback, he can get whole groups of people to synchronize their heart rates and brain waves and drive them into group flow. Whoa, that sounds really cool. I can imagine in a high-performing, uh, flow-conscious organization or workplace, you could do something like give all of the employees or give some of the employees HRV devices and then have them train together, do like 10-15 minutes together, and then you could add some of these other, add some of these other triggers. Like, I don't know, you could add one of those dorky team-building, trust-building exercises that organizations seem to do from time to time. If you're looking for a cool, flow-inspiring visual, check out this music video that I linked to by the artist Android Jones. Try, try doing your uh, meditation or your mindfulness while looking at that. I'll mention PDCS. This is biohacking tech that, tech that stimulates focus, creativity, and motivation. This runs a very small electrical current across the front of your cranium with some little plastic suction pads. And TDS has been researched widely and has been the subject of an impressive 60 human studies uh, and is demonstrated as effective in everything from improving reaction times and working memory to treating depression. I did a little bit of research on this, some searching, and the brain driver is the top rated TDCS device on Amazon. I, it was relatively affordable too. It was under $200. And I, I should note that the priority with these devices is, of course, safety. And they have multiple levels of auto shut off, 
to make sure that you never are at risk of getting like a uh, an excessive electrical uh, shock because that would of course not be very good. I'll quote from the book. On the higher end of the spectrum, state-changing treatments like transcranial magnetic stimulation are now outperforming antidepressants, and many Silicon Valley executives are going off-label using technology to defrag their mental hard drives and boost performance. And boy, that defragging your mental hard drive, that sounds cool. I, I sure know that I could use that after the end of some days, right? I bet you feel the same way. Let's talk about video games. Interestingly, video games can be a real gateway to flow. And you've, of course, experienced this. If you ever spent an entire night binge playing a video game and you just got super engrossed in it and after six, seven, eight hours of play, the sun was coming up and you were still kind of sweaty and focused. I'll quote from the book on this. Games are a multi-billion dollar industry that employ the best neuroscientists and behavior psychologists to make them as addicting as possible. Nicholas Carteras, one of the country's top addiction specialists, recently explained to Vice, the developers strap beta testing teens with galvanic skin response, EKG, and blood pressure gauges. If the game doesn't spike their blood pressure to 180 over 140, they go back and tweak the game to make it more of an adrenaline rush effect. Video games raise dopamine to the same degree that sex does, and almost as much as cocaine does. So this combo of adrenaline and dopamine are a potent one-two punch in regards to addiction. For the longest time, I thought that video games were kind of just a, a childish waste of time, but I'm actually kind of considering getting back into gaming given, given some of this research. Uh, it would be a way to it would be an entertaining and amusing, a diverting way to get more flow into my life. And especially noteworthy here are fast-paced video games where you are racing or shooting monsters or whatever. And the games that are going to be most uh, flow-inducing are going to be games with like a clear goal and then immediate feedback on your performance. I've heard people talking about, uh, actually about like Pong or playing ping pong as being classic flow triggers because you have a real clear goal, uh, your score or beating the other player, and then you get immediate feedback. And they have this high, uh, they have this, this relatively high ratio of skill that they require from you. Uh, things like world building or strategy computer games, even though I really enjoyed some of those in the past, those are not really what we're talking about here. I would love to hear from you guys. I know some of you guys are pretty hardcore gamers. What games have you played that really induced flow state for you? Also notably is Gravity. In Rise of Superman, which was the previous book, he talks about how gravity, or at least the perception of gravity, is a real trigger for flow. Time after time, they told us it comes down to two things, the right triggers and gravity. So you're probably not gonna take up 
free running as a hobby. You know, be like one of those really crazy guys that's running along and jumping and rolling along the edges of skyscrapers. That that doesn't seem like really a good idea to me. But what you could do is you could get a, a VR uh, and you don't have to get that crazy Oculus Rift that's like $1,500. You could just get one of those cheapo VR sets that you slip your smartphone into and then it works off the smartphone's accelerometer and you could spend like 10, 15 minutes a day, maybe even do it over your lunch break, playing some fast-paced video games that include a lot of uh, a lot of heights that are going to be stimulating a lot of gravity, and that would really be flow state stimulating as well. That I'm gonna that I'm gonna try and report back report back results. Maybe I'll get one of those for Christmas. Now I want to talk about an interesting topic that the book covers, which is ecstatic political repercussions. And the book devotes some time to talking about how ecstasis is transforming not only us individually, but it's also transforming us on a political and societal level. And I found some of the descriptions of ecstatic events, like think about Burning Man, or you can even think about, uh, there was Envision Festival, which I attended a while back in, Costa Rica. Here's what they have to say. And it wasn't just Silicon Valley tech titans in attendance. Senior vice presidents from Goldman Sachs, heads of the largest creative ad agencies in the world, and leaders of the World Economic Forum were all discreetly there, using fancifully assumed names, far from the flashbulbs and scrutiny of the media and the markets. Their goal was to forge based on the shared experience of communitas writ large, a permanent burning man community. And this is interesting. So what it describes in the book is how you have all these different elites in uh, big government, in uh, technology, in finance, and they are getting together at these ecstatic events and they are scheming on how they can turn the whole world into Burning Man, which is kind of, that's an understandable fantasy when you're there at this week-long love fest in the desert, right? It seems like, why, why can't the whole world just be as awesome as Burning Man is? But I find it really important to note that Burning Man is not statist, and the authors of the book make this point too. It's important to understand that in preparation for the event, all the central Burning Man organization does is survey the streets and put out porta-potties. So at Burning Man, there is no centralized power. There's no Supreme Court. There's no president. There's no uh, really strict rules or laws. There's no central banking going on. There's no uh, legalized bribery. There's no perverse financial incentives that are making people make really bad decisions. There's no uh, dysgenic welfare that is discouraging productivity. And uh, that's a little bit troubling because I, I can see what's happening is, is these elites are saying, Let's just take everything about Burning Man and put it into the real world. And I say, great, let's do that, but let's start with getting rid of the government. And then I think we might actually be able to have 
a real world that is a bit more like Burning Man. And for, for these elites and even more pedestrian influencers that are there in attendance, ecstatic events are really networking on steroids. They are really a hardcore networking life hack. Quote, we learned that when you take a bunch of really bright, diverse people, explains Rosenthal, and let them share a dynamic, immersive experience, you get powerful results. Lifelong friendships are formed. It removes the tedious, transactional nature of networking. I guess you could say that it's one of the things we discovered on a trip was that these altered states really accelerate business. So let's talk about, let's talk about tyranny. Yeah, tyranny. We're, uh, we're moving, moving into some new territory with this review. As flow enters the mainstream uh, as an information technology, there's a real kind of concern that it will go the way of the internet, television, radio, and print empires, and that it could become a tool of the tyrants and the control freaks in big government and big business. I'll read from the book. Much in the same way that regimes used to declare certain books subversive, it's not too much of a stretch to imagine the government declaring a certain brain chemistry submersive, a telltale combination of neurotransmitters coursing through your bloodstream could be enough to put on to put you on a watch list or worse. And this is why Kotler really urges in the book, he says, the revolution must be open sourced. The ultimate paradox of these states, all the liberation that comes, all that liberation comes with an unavoidable dose of responsibility. While these states provide access to heightened performance and perspective, the upsides come at a cost. Between our own wayward tendencies and the dangers of militarization and commercialization, it's easier than ever to fall asleep at the switch. And it also delves into the dark sides of flow. And a lot of times when you see people talking about ecstasis and this sort of thing, there's no sense of conservatism at all. They're just saying, go buck wild, do, do whatever the hell you want, do whatever feels good. But I, I appreciated that the book uh, went in and gave kind of some, some protocols and some guidelines for using flow safely because it's not a, it's not a zero risk intervention in our personal development. When the prefrontal cortex shuts down, impulse control, long-term planning, and critical reasoning faculties go offline too. We lose our checks and balances. Combine that with excessive dopamine telling us that the connections we're making are radically important and must be immediately acted upon. That we're radically important and must be listened to. It's not hard to imagine how this can go wrong. And in the book, it, it gives actually a, uh, an equation, it breaks down an equation that can be used for kind of quantifying the, the risk of a different flow intervention. So you'll want to check that out in the review that I'll link to. And finally, the book prescribes flow in moderation. Altered states are an information technology, and what you're after is quality data. If you spend all of your time blissed out, zenned out, drunk, 
stoned, sexed up, or anything else, then you've lost all the contrast that initially made those experiences so rich, what made them altered in the first place. By balancing inebriated abandon with monk-like sobriety, ribald sexuality with introspective celibacy, and extreme risk-taking with cozy domesticity, you'll create more contrast and spot patterns sooner. The book also describes hedonic calendaring, which is kind of a cool idea. It's the idea of ritualizing your experience of flow. So this means that you kind of schedule out the different flow things that you do in life, that you're not just doing them all of the time. So this would be something like, hey, devote an hour to meditation every Sunday afternoon, or every Saturday, spend a couple of hours having tantric sex with your partner. Or maybe on your birthday, once a year, you do a, uh, a psychedelic trip. You do an ayahuasca thing like I did once upon a time. Or maybe just on New Year's every year, you do some MDMA in a, in a, controlled, in a controlled setting. And you'll have to <laughs> be really careful to make sure that you're actually getting good stuff. You don't want to buy whatever is for sale from some questionable, enthusiastic character, whatever party you're at on New Year's. So I, really, I rated this book four stars on Amazon, not five stars, but four stars because I was hoping that it might contain like a bit more actionable information, some more like specific protocols for flow. Uh, and what it really is, is it's a fascinating uh, philosophical and scientific discussion of the state-of-the-art research and thinking on ecstasis. If you're really looking for those real specific guides to uh, getting into flow and experiencing it, you'll want to go and check out what's out there on the internet, what different biohackers are writing. They, The authors have the Flow Genome product. They have a great website on this. I would recommend that you go and check out that website. It has some surveys and some, uh, some self-knowledge type tools that I think are probably real worthwhile. And I will also be putting out, I'll be putting out another article here sometime soon on some specific flow protocol. So you're going to want to uh, jump onto my email list or follow me on Medium, follow my blog and look out for that. This book has renewed my interest in lingering longer in the deep now that it describes. And in the past, I kind of had a high risk tolerance. I've always been interested in flow. I've always kind of had flow state type activities that I was into, and I had a bit bit higher risk tolerance. So I would be into things like I did surfing when I lived there in Costa Rica. I could often be found on a Friday or Saturday night dancing all night long at a club or a rave or a festival. I've uh, done psychedelics ceremonies, and I was into a lot of uh, social risk-taking, flow state-inducing type activities. Things like day game and night game. Look, look that up if you're a guy and you don't know what that is. But my risk tolerance is, is changing a bit. You know, I'm getting a little bit older. 
I might not look it, but I am getting a little bit older, uh, advancing through that fourth decade of life. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, reconsider my, my risks that I'm taking in life. So I'm going to look into oming or uh, orgasmic meditation. I want to get my hands on some of this flow tech and use that stuff with some more regularity. I want to look back at video games. And then finally, I'll interestingly add religion. I recall when I was younger, when I was quite religious, I had some really beautiful experiences of flow with some regularity. And I think I, think I may uh, get back into it, if anything, just to experience that, that flow again. So shortly, I'll be publishing, like I said, another uh, guide. I'll be publishing some more uh, work on this topic. Check out this book if you want. Check out some of the tools and the things that I mentioned. And I look forward to a continued conversation with you about.